I would add my welcome. I'm glad to see so many here this morning. How many are here, by the way? Okay, got about half you. That's great. And we mentioned that word comfortable, and I think people have been working on that ever since it was mentioned here. Pastor Todd's here to comfort the afflicted, and I'm here to afflict the comfortable. So we make a good team. Today's scriptures are going to be found in John's Gospel, chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, your Bible app, or whatever you're using to uh, reference scripture, you'll find us in John, chapter 2. We have some uh, references of uh, other scriptures as well. But this is, isn't this a beautiful Sunday morning? Gorgeous. 20 more days till spring. And uh, I'm glad you're excited. And... um, Next weekend is time change weekend, so yeah, woo, woo, woo. So think about this. The glory work of Jesus, for lack of a better description, is best revealed when he takes ordinary people and enables them to accomplish the extraordinary or extraordinary. Hmm. So his glory work really is best revealed When he takes ordinary people, and I'm going to add, and situations, and enables them to accomplish the extraordinary. So that's my topic for this morning. And we're just going to call it the glory work of Jesus. Join me as we anticipate then the extraordinary. Open your mind, open your heart, open your spirit to what's coming, the extraordinary. Are you ready? In the second chapter of John, you have the account of the first miracle of our Lord. The scene has shifted now, the, the geography here, from Judea, where John the Baptist was baptizing in the River Jordan, to 70 miles north, we got a map here that we can give you an idea. So it's shifted from Judea, see that down in the bottom, to all the way up to the area known as Samaria, the, um, that's a, a, in Galilee. That's about uh, 70 miles. That's how far they had walked. Jesus and his disciples. So right there I got your attention because we a lot of times like to talk about how hard we worked and how far we traveled and how much walking we've done and how our pedometer is registering and so on. Well, Jesus and the disciples only walked 70 miles to get there, and that's just one of their little side trips, of course. So as you open your Bible to John chapter 2, especially as we get in there to verse 1, We'll read about something that is extraordinary, and it's a wedding reception. You can almost picture it in your mind's eye as you read about it, and so maybe we could read it together. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. That boy, that is very important right there. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Nice. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, 
they have no more wine. <laughs> mm. Wow. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. All right. And that is the hour that he would reveal to everybody who he is and etc. Why he was here, etc., etc. So we're just going to look at those first four verses to start with, and that'll kind of that'll kind of catapult us into the rest of my thoughts here this morning. So here's the occasion. It's an Eastern wedding. And um, can I just say the traditions are far different than what we know here in the Western world. If you've been to a wedding here in this part of the world, and you start talking about wedding to people from that part of the world, they would tell you you've never been to a wedding. You don't even understand the meaning of the word, wedding. So they're very different. In the Western weddings here, the bride is the prominent figure. Matter of fact, it's the bride's day. It's all about the bride. It's all, everything's built around the bride. When she enters, clad in all her glory, the whole group of people gathered, the congregation stands, and the organ or the musicians or whoever start playing, here comes the bride, and every eye or camera or lens or whatever is focused on one person, and that's the bride. Now in the Eastern culture, it's almost the opposite. Because it's the groom who is prominent. He's the featured one, and the bride merely shows up for the wedding. And it's nice that she does. Not only, can I add, is the groom the featured person, but he also pays for the whole deal. Wow. And some of the weddings in Jesus' day were known to go on for two or three or four days. Some of them as long as a week with all the relatives joining together for celebration. Now this is the kind of wedding reception that John's writing about here. So when you see, oh, they were invited to a wedding and they walked 70 miles and they got to Cana and they went to this wedding because we, don't, we aren't told why. It's not its duration, duration of the wedding. How long did it last? How much celebrating went on? How many people stayed around? That's not what made it extraordinary. Ray Stedman, a Bible expositor from a long time, along many years, observed that since Jesus' mother, Mary, figures rather prominently at this wedding, she is kind of mentioned more than once, it's likely this could have been the wedding of one of Jesus' younger siblings, a sister or a cousin, but it, it, it isn't that family name that's drawing all the attention of the fact that Jesus and his mother and his disciples and some of his relatives were probably there that makes it extraordinary. That's not what made this wedding so extraordinary. Notice in verse 3 that the mother alerts Jesus to the fact that the party has run out of wine. That's a big deal. Now, why would Mary deem it necessary to alert Jesus about this? Since Jesus had not yet performed any miracles, this was the first of them, and you can read that in verse 11, 
This was the first of his miraculous signs. Well, we, we should not so quickly assume that Mary just intended Jesus to miraculously make more wine. He hadn't, he hadn't performed any miracles. She hadn't seen him do a miracle. There was no mention of miracles. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, wondered if Mary's hope was that Jesus would quell the guest's annoyance with some godly exhortation or some teaching, if he could just quiet them down. Plausible, possibly, given the fact that while Mary may not have ever witnessed a miracle from her son, she would have many occasions, had many occasions, to witness his outstanding life and his ability to teach and to exhort from the very scriptures themselves. And maybe Mary was simply responding like any other I think at this time, widowed mother would, turning to her firstborn son for some kind of help. So it's not a mother's request either. It's not the family name. It's not the fact that Jesus is there. It's not any of that that makes this wedding reception extraordinary. No matter what Mary expected, Jesus solved the problem, though, by turning water into wine. So what does this historical account from the earthly life of Jesus tell us about our Lord? Way more than any of us have ever been taught before and way more than most any of us have ever taught or preached before. There's more in this story than we've ever even thought about probably before. Oh, John 2, Jesus and his mother and the disciples, they go to a wedding, the reception runs out of wine, Jesus turns water into wine, and... What a story. If that's all the story, it would be quite in, uh, amazing. That's not the story that we want to look at today. Here's what the apostle wrote in verse 11, that in changing water to wine, Jesus revealed his glory. And then, then, if you want, to, if you want a striking point, then his disciples began to trust him. Very important. What makes this wedding reception so extraordinary then is that it provided an occasion for Jesus to reveal his glory work. And you may sit here this morning and ask then, how is Jesus' glory work revealed? Glad that we're asking that question because now we're dipping in to the real meaning of this story and what it has for us today. Jesus' glory work is revealed as he works with the ordinary. To miss that would be to miss the whole chapter. To miss that would be to miss the whole significance of the story and its background and what it's going to mean for us, for you and for me today. Please notice the ordinary, everyday, even the mundane things that Jesus works with. First, Jesus works in ordinary problems. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem here is that the groom's party didn't purchase enough wine for the wedding reception. Whoops. So let me interject here with a thought that will stir you and I hope get you digging. And you won't find it on the screen and purposely I didn't put it on the screen because I want you to think it through. If you're notating, writing, putting this in your app, whatever. 
Here it is. Every miracle begins with a problem. Every miracle begins with a problem. Now this could no doubt have been a very embarrassing situation for the family of the groom, but no doubt this, this kind of thing had happened many times. I don't think it was an uncommon thing in, in first century Palestine. So first, Jesus works in ordinary problems. No problem, no miracle. Secondly, Jesus works with an ordinary request. It was simple. It was a mother's request. It was not her first request. And I dare to stand before you today and say, I'll bet you it wasn't her last either. Mary's first request, do you remember it? Are you literate enough in the New Testament to remember that it's recorded in the New Testament, though it probably wasn't her very first request of Jesus, but you'll find it in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus, at the age of 12, remains in the temple complex during a Passover celebration, discussing none other than theology with the teachers of Jerusalem, while his family headed back to their home in Nazareth. And although it is not explicitly stated in that text, it is assumed that Mary said something like, Jesus, come home with us now. And you can also write this down in your notes. That's the longest time out known to mankind. We don't even hear of Jesus from the time he's 12 till the time he's 30. <laughs> and our teenage kids today complain about timeouts. They complain about being grounded. How would you like to be grounded from 12 to 30? Just saying. There was another time Mary's last recorded request from Jesus. This, is, this would be a great test on a, a, a question on a New Testament text. What were Mary's first public requests and last requests of Jesus, her son? Well, the last recorded request from Jesus is also found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8, as well as Matthew 12, as well as Mark 3, where Jesus' brothers and his mother travel from Nazareth to Capernaum to take Jesus home. And Mark 3.21 tells us explicitly and absolutely why they made that trip, and here's why. Because they thought that Jesus had lost his mind. You read it for yourself. Mark 3.21. Now here also Mary's request, it's not explicitly stated in the text, but it's safe to assume that Mary said pretty much the same thing as she had said earlier. Jesus, please come home with us now. She might have said some other things too, but she was urgent upon him. This time Jesus did not go home with his mother. Matter of fact, the first time he didn't either. He stayed a few days, and they came back a second time to get him and retrieved him and gave him a piece of their mind. Friend, unless you have ever had family members or the very closest associate you can think of 
pressuring you to do what they believe was right and imposing their opinion on you, then you can't really identify with Mary's situation. You can't really get what's going on there. Because deep within her heart, she knew Jesus was God the Son. I don't think she ever had any doubt about that. She had more than enough evidence to be convinced of it. But Jesus' half-brothers kept pushing her until she relented. And she went with the idea of bringing him home because she and they were convinced he lost his mind. Interesting, Mary's first request was motivated by concern, but it resulted in wonderment and faith, if you read the end of Luke 2. And Luke reports that Mary treasured up all the amazing things about Jesus in her heart, Luke 2, 51 and 52, that my, my, my friend, that is a response of faith. When she thinks of all the wonderful things about this child, about this gift, about this soon-to-become-the-man. She, she just pondered all those things. That she kept them in her heart, and she loved the thought of every one of them. That is what we call the response of faith. Deep within, deep within, she knew. But sadly... All four of the gospel writers have no positive report of Mary's faith. No positive report at the time of Luke chapter 8. Perhaps family pressure was smothering her faith. Maybe it was just silencing her faith. Maybe her faith wasn't dominant when these well-meaning family members were putting the heat on her and just pressuring her and pressuring her. I don't know. And John reports that at this point in Jesus' ministry, his family, for sure his own brothers, did not believe in him. And you can find that in John chapter 7, verse 5. Nevertheless, what is wonderful about Jesus? What makes Jesus worthy of our worship and witness is that many times he's pleased to use an ordinary request to accomplish fantastic things. In John chapter 2, we read that Jesus was pleased to use a simple request from his mother to accomplish his glory work. Jesus works with ordinary problems, and he works with ordinary requests for help. I don't know why sometimes we get, we put Jesus in a different category altogether, and we get beyond this idea of Jesus doing something for us because it would be just too much to ask. Jesus works with ordinary problems and he works with ordinary requests for help. Have you ever asked Jesus for help? And then the third thing I want to mention here is that Jesus works also with ordinary substances. He changed ordinary water into extraordinary wine. And he didn't need 
holier-than-thou water bottled and imported to Cana in Galilee from Jerusalem's temple complex, blessed by the high priest and shipped in kosher pickle jars. Jesus used common, everyday drinking water. Can it get any simpler than that? Can it get any more basic than that to our understanding? I love what Augustine said in the 4th century. And I quote, He who made the wine at this wedding does the same thing every year in the vines of the earth. As the water which the servants put in the water pots was turned into wine by the Lord, so that which the clouds pour down is turned into wine by the same Lord. End quote. Wow. The glory of Jesus is that he is pleased to use simple, ordinary things to accomplish the extraordinary. Wow. First, Jesus works in ordinary problems. Second, Jesus works with ordinary requests. Third, Jesus also works with ordinary people and events and simple life substances. The stuff that you and I can identify with, the stuff of <coughs> excuse me, everyday life to accomplish the extraordinary. <coughs> so what this means for you and me, I want to just back it up a little bit in our minds. And I want to make it realistic in our expectations. And I want to make it so every one of us here can identify easily with this statement. What this means for you and me is that if we are only looking for Jesus' glorious workings in the spectacular, the miraculous, the astounding, prodigious, staggering, stupendous, eye-popping, thrilling, dramatic events of life, then we're going to miss much of his glory work. And I fear that a lot of well-meaning Christians are looking for just that. You see, friend, someone has uh, wisely said, life is 90% perspiration and only 10% inspiration. If Jesus isn't the Lord of your mundane, then is he really the Lord of your life? I mean, friend, does your life consist of common, everyday problems? I used to step back like this after I'd say something like that in the pulpit for fear a hymn book was coming at me. And then I remember, oh yeah, we don't use those things here. So hard to say what might be coming, like a cell phone or something. Or a water bottle. So I'll ask it again since it went by some people. Does your life consist of common, everyday problems? Yes. 
Like, for, I'll give you an for instance. Not ordering enough wine for your brother's wedding. That's a common, ordinary type of problem. It wasn't that day. And there are similar type things in our day. And since some of you, I think maybe the most, would agree that that's what our life is consistent, what it consists of, then that's fantastic because here's good news. Here's good news. That's the kind of stuff in which Jesus loves to reveal his glory so that you, as his disciple, just like his disciples back on that day, can really fully put your trust in him. Let me ask. Are you an ordinary person with ordinary needs and ordinary requests? I have had in the past people say to me, someone say to me, well, uh, my requests are really, really something special and I don't imagine God's ever heard this one before or ever had to deal with this type of... Well... I'm looking this morning for the ordinary person with ordinary needs and ordinary requests. If you're that kind of person, fantastic. Why? Because I have good news for you. That's the kind of stuff in which Jesus loves to reveal his glory so that you, as his disciple, just like his disciples on that day, can fully and really and truly trust in him. Oh, I have another question, my friend. Is your life surrounded with simple stuff? Like, I mean, your resources, are they simple resources, meager and mundane? Not exactly out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Most of us uh, identify. Well, if you identify, that's fantastic because I have some good news for you. That's the kind of stuff in which Jesus loves to reveal his glory so that you, as his disciple, just like his disciples on that very day, can fully and really and completely put your trust in him. How is Jesus' glory work revealed? As he works with ordinary, ordinary people, ordinary problems, ordinary resources, people just like you. And just like me. And this is one reason that he is worthy of our worship and our, work and our witness. It is. But there's a second reason. As you ask, how is Jesus' glory revealed? Jesus' glory is revealed as he works with the ordinary to make it extraordinary. Notice John chapter 2 again, going back to the text chapter. We're going to jump up to verse 8, if you would. And we're going to read verses 8 through 11. Then we're going to come back and read the three verses that we've skipped over. Could you read with me? Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. 
But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples. See what's happening here? This is the first sign, the first miracle. How he deals with this simple miracle reveals his glory and his disciples end up believing or trusting in him. So much comes together in these 11 verses. It's absolutely amazing. When the master of the banquet tasted, (laughs) see, you have to taste it, and realized the water had been turned to wine, And he didn't know where it came from. He called the bridegroom aside. And everyone brings out the choice wine first. He says, I don't know, this is backwards. And then the cheap wine comes out after everybody's had too much to drink. But not you. You have saved the best till now. To me, this is, I see Jesus so clearly in this teaching. Jesus does not merely content himself with producing mediocre work. He creates wine of a superior quality. This is the best wine. The finest wine. The greatest thing they've ever tasted. Look, Jesus may begin with ordinary things, but he makes the ordinary extraordinary. And I got thinking of this several days ago, and I highlighted that sentence in my notes because I wanted it to go on the screen. And I got thinking, man, could I take a left turn here and just go on for hours on the whole realm of creation? And particularly as we come down to the creation of man. When you talk about God taking the simplest form of anything and making it the highest form of all his creation. Taking the ordinary and producing beyond doubt the extraordinary of extraordinaries. Turn to someone and say, you're extraordinary. Yeah, I bet they're enthused. Are you getting it back to you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say that sentence again. Jesus may begin with ordinary things, but he makes the ordinary extraordinary. And right there in a bracket, I wrote the word Creation. See, the extraordinary nature of Jesus' work is it runs all throughout Jesus' glory work and it's recorded in John's Gospel. And throughout this Gospel, I thank God that John had the presence of mind to record all this wonderful data and all these details. Remember in 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 the Gospel of John when Jesus healed a royal official's son? That was in chapter 4. 
He doesn't eat, the, the, the guard or the centurion lived in Capernaum. He doesn't even have to walk to Capernaum to lay hands on him, but he performs that healing long distance. And he didn't have the internet. He is the internet. Now think about it. He's all knowledge, all the time, everywhere, on every subject. You can ask Siri, but I'm going to ask Jesus. The man's son was lying ill and dying, and Jesus is nowhere near Capernaum. Had he been, I'm sure he would have laid hands on that kid and healed him completely. But guess what? He healed him completely anyway. Long distance. In the healing, remember the lame man, chapter 5. Jesus doesn't merely restore feeling in the man's legs. The man got up and walked. Listen, he'd been lame for 38 years. Had never walked. When Jesus gives sight to the blind man, then was found out that man has been blind from birth. He's never seen. You say, oh, I thought he had this ordinary cataract surgery. No, no, this man had been blind from birth. And Jesus heals him. Still in John's Gospel, when Jesus hears of Lazarus being so sick unto death, and what's he do? Oh, he calls Uber and he gets right over to see Lazarus as quickly as he can. No, he said everything's fine and he waits three more days. And when he arrives on the scene, he heals more than a sick man. He raises the dead! Sorry, I'm excited. Well, I'm sorry for you. And interestingly, Lazarus had been dead not three days now, four days. You say, is that significant though? And listen to me. Listen to me. Do you know that being dead four days back then was one day more than when a man's spirit was believed to leave his corpse. That was according to ancient Jewish belief in Jesus' day. So if it's now four days, he's not just dead, he's gone. Yeah? The extraordinary nature of Jesus' ministry is a it just runs throughout Jesus' glory works in all of the Gospel of John. I thank God for this Gospel this morning. So if your problems are long-standing, like the man's problem, been lame for 38 years, the man who was blind from birth, or long-distance problem like the sickness of the official son, these aren't too difficult for Jesus. I don't know why we put a limit on what he can do and wants to do. I don't understand that. In our minds, we're saying, well, there's certain things he can't do, and certain things I'm not going to ask him, for, because I know that. Yeah. My mind's, it's just closed. Can I say it one more time? Every miracle begins with a problem. 
And if you're sitting here today and you have a problem, I don't know what the problem is, and I don't need to know. I don't know what category it's in. If it's minor, moderate, major, supra, infrared, I don't know, whatever problem category you're in. Whatever you're dealing with right now that you just think, if you don't get this resolved by noon, the world will explode. Definitely it's going to implode. And I'm not making fun of your problem. Whatever the problem is you came in with, let me tell you that every miracle begins right where you are. And as we focus on Jesus' water-to-wine miracle, he made some very good wine, I guess, huh? But I think his glory is revealed even more when he makes ordinary lives extraordinary. When he transforms lives. Huh? Let me ask you this. Is the quality of your life today better because of your faith in Jesus? Now, hope you got the question right. Thank you for the answers. I appreciate the response. I didn't ask you if your life was easier. I didn't ask you if your life was more fun. I didn't ask you if your life was more affluent. I didn't ask you if your life was just a little bit easier road to travel. And I didn't even ask you if you and your life now have higher self-esteem than you had before you came to Jesus. Is the quality of your life fundamentally better in terms of personal relationships and personal righteousness and ethics and contentment and meaning and purpose and other biblical virtues that we know and love like faith and hope and love? Okay, I guess I could put it this way, staying in John chapter 2. What is Jesus making from the water of your life? What are you bringing him? What's he making of it? His glory work is best revealed when he takes the ordinary stuff, right? And makes it extraordinary. And when he takes us, ordinary people, and makes extraordinary people, people who... And you say, what are you... What? You keep saying people, extraordinary people. Is this some kind of a, of a, of a caste system here? that Some are better, some are more glorious than others. What, what are you talking about here, Bob, when you talk about the extraordinary person? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because I wanted to get to it. Extraordinary people are people whose lives have been transformed by the power of Christ and now they are living people who are like Jesus. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? You've heard all this. Some of you have. Some of you have ignored it. But, and I'm sorry for that. Todd will be back next week. You saw how all that came, came together in John 2. We may have missed one thing, and I've got to put it in here. 
Jesus expects, expects us to be part of the process. Jesus doesn't go around all over the globe dropping miracles on people's head and knocking them over and they can't even figure out what's going on. That's <laughs> not how it works. He expects us to be part of it. So I'm going to ask, what do you think might have happened if Mary hadn't asked Jesus to do something about the wine shortage? I don't know for sure, but the Bible makes it clear that God expects us to ask him for what we need. You do not have, James 4, 2 says, because you do not ask God. That's a simple statement. You do not have because you do not ask God. Could it be that we aren't experiencing more of Jesus' glory work of transforming the ordinary into the extraordinary simply because we lack the faith to ask God? So if I might, I'm going to go back to those three verses that we missed, and quickly we're going to read them, and then we're going to close this message. So we're reading now from John 2, verses 5, 6, and 7. Look at that. And so if you'll read with me, His mother said to the servants, What did she say? That's wise. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20. Ooh, those would be heavy. Jesus said to the servants, We got some action here. What do you think might have happened? Just, just let's play devil's advocate. What do you think might have happened if the banquet servants, uh, servants addressed by Mary in verse 5 and again by Jesus in verse 7 and 8? had not obeyed the instructions that were given to them. What do you think would have happened? Maybe Jesus and his disciples would have filled the water jars themselves. I don't know. But then again, Jesus might have said, well, look, if you don't trust me, don't even trust me enough to do what I ask you, then I'm not going to be able to bless you. I don't know that. But I'm guessing. But we do know that the people of, in Jesus' own hometown, this is something. Have you ever read these verses? The people in his own hometown would not believe in him. So he couldn't do too much glory work there. This is astonishing. And if you haven't written anything down or notated anything, would you please bookmark Mark 6, 1 through 6. Wow. Part of it says a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. I've heard those ver that verse since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, and for a long time I had no idea what it meant. But boy, as I started learning and started getting out amongst people and started growing as, and maturing as a person and then growing as a Christian and being, wow, wow, a prophet is not without honor, save or except in his own country. Could it be that we aren't experiencing more Jesus' glory work? Where he transforms ordinary into extraordinary because we lack faith to obey him? I want you to notice that Mary had to ask, the servants had to obey, and they had to fill and carry in order for the glory work to be revealed. We need to ask Jesus to meet our needs, whether it's at home 
whether it's in the marriage, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's on the job, or in this church, if we want to experience the ordinary of our lives being transformed into the extraordinary, and I just submit to you, who wouldn't want that? And we need to lay the water jars of our lives at his feet. Those are the resources of time, talent, and treasure. If we want to experience ordinary stuff being transformed into extraordinary glory work of Christ. What's wonderful about Jesus and what makes Jesus worthy of our worship and our witness and our praise is that many times, and I thank him for this, He's pleased to use ordinary requests and ordinary people and ordinary problems. If they'll just lay their meager, ordinary resources at his feet, he'll accomplish fantastic things. When was the last time Jesus took some of the ordinary stuff of your life and produced extraordinary results? What kind of results? Power to love, power to forgive, to be generous, to sacrifice for the success of others. If it's been a long while, maybe it's because you're not asking him to reveal his glory work in your life. Or maybe it's because you're not willing to follow the instructions. If his own mother struggled, don't be surprised that you struggle over things. (laughs) If Jesus' own mother, traveling with Jesus struggled through times of personal doubt and possibly even disobedience, certainly we should expect that we might also struggle with trusting God and obeying the Lord at every turn. Think about it. The Holy Spirit led John to include this account of Jesus changing water into wine to help us understand that Jesus reveals his glory so that we, as his disciples, might deepen our trust in him. And I wonder, will you renew your faith this morning? Will you dedicate your all to Jesus right here, right now? Will you bring the water pots of your life and ask for them to be filled so that he might do a wonderful work of glory in you? Will you decide this morning, right now as we close in prayer, in a new fresh way, that you're going to start believing Him more? You're going to start asking more from Him. And you're going to start obeying more. And anticipating, remember we started off? Anticipating more. Jesus' extraordinary glory work in your life. Oh, 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 oh. The glory work of Jesus. Mm, mm, mm. Can we have a quiet time? Just for a few moments. While we allow everyone in the room a few moments of introspection where you look inwardly and not outwardly where you look up and not down. Where you look to the Lord God Almighty, the author and the finisher of your faith, the one to whom you will answer someday, the one who wants to take your life and he wants to take the simple and the mundane things of your life and turn them into the extraordinary. Would you pray that prayer today?
Would you ask God to do that work in you? And would you believe him and obey him and act on his instructions? So much, dear Lord, you've taught us from this word, and so much more there is, I know. But we thank you for these nuggets of truth and blessings which abound. May our hearts be turned to you in a very special and unusual way with a new love and a holy, pure passion. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.